Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. You're going to turn with us to the Gospel according to St. Luke. Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6. where we are continuing to take a look at the way that Jesus challenges those who follow Him. And in particular, the group of people that He has just handpicked out of the hundreds that have been following Him on His journey, on His wanderings from place to place, from synagogue to synagogue, traveling down the River Jordan, on a slow progression from His home region of Galilee to the capital of Jerusalem. And all the while he's ministering and he's performing signs and wonders. People are getting attracted to his ministry because not only is he preaching with more authority than those others of his day, but he's also giving signs that God's power is upon him. He is being identified by many in murmurings already as the Mashiach Nagid, Christ the King. Yet no one yet speaks openly of it. They're still waiting for that day that was predicted by Daniel so long ago. That day when the king would arrive. When he would be presented as a lamb to the slaughter. But for now, Jesus is giving us another image. He's giving us the image of the rabbi of rabbis, of the master teacher of the one who not only understands God's Word, but lives it out, who is God's Word. As the Apostle John wrote in his Gospel message, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. So Jesus as Word made flesh, as God incarnate, is now, after a night spent on top of a mountain in prayer, is now speaking to the people who would become His closest friends, His brothers in ministry. And He's challenging them, and He's also challenging the crowd that overhears. And this is part of the what we call the Sermon on the Plain that gets interesting from Luke's recollection. Luke, who was the physician, was compiling stories, interviewing people to put together a narrative. And unlike Matthew, Luke might not have been skilled in shorthand. So what we see are bits and pieces of teaching sewn together to make a narrative. And sometimes it seems a little disjunct. So watch out for that. But I want you to be aware of two things. Number one... And I want you to write this down, not the name, but the concept. The name of the concept is the rule of expositional constancy. That's a mouthful. But it's an elaborate way of saying that when the Holy Spirit inspires something to be penned in what would become the Word of God, if He, if he picks an image to represent a truth of Scripture, Chances are that remains constant all the way through all 66 books. 
When a rock or a stone is called up as something that supports something else or provides something, like the water from the stone at Meribah, when we're talking about the ministry of Moses, the stone is often an image of the coming king, of the Messiah, of the provision of God, on the stability of him who is all-powerful. We're going to see a lot of that in these last few teachings of Christ in this particular sermon. The other thing that I'd really like for you to, to consider is while we're talking through this, I know in your notes there, is like, there are three points with a bunch of spaces after that for you to keep your notes. I'm going to start off by teaching you the Scripture as we're reading through it and then get into that. So please, there's a lot in here because of the way Luke broke it up. Now like some biblical scholars, I believe that what Luke was doing originally when he composed Luke Volume 1, Luke Volume 2, the Gospel and the Book of Acts, I don't think that this was intended from the offset to be a teaching tool so much as it was, uh, that is what it became. But I believe what occasioned Luke to start pinning things and to go to Palestine from, uh, from Gentile territory and to go around to all these different people who had first-hand accounts of Christ's knowledge and to start scribbling this stuff down in what would eventually become Luke and Acts, I think what had occasioned his writing was Paul's imprisonment. Before someone could uh, be presented before Caesar as an appeal in a legal situation, uh, uh, an account of that person's testimony had to be established by witnesses, it had to be written up, and then it had to be submitted to Caesar ahead of time. So many believe that what you have in your hands originated as the trial documents for the Apostle Paul. And that's the reason that it does kind of have this disjunct feel in comparison to, say, Matthew or Mark. But let's move into Scripture. Luke chapter 6. In the notes of what Jesus is teaching to his closest friends, remember, there are all these round about him that are overhearing what Jesus is saying. And Jesus continues challenging them by reminding them in verse 40. And again, this is the pattern through which we not only uh, have a teacher and student, but also pastor and deacon, uh, lead and elder, and so forth. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Meaning that you inevitably become a reflection of the thing that you worship. If you worship an image of Christ that is truly Christ-like, Paul goes on to tell us that we should exhibit these fruit of the Spirit. That if we worship something else, we will become like that object that we worship. If we worship the world, we will end up looking like what? The world. For those churches out there who attempt to steep themselves in worldly wisdom, devoid of the wisdom and the power of God's Word, they end up looking exactly like the world that they claim that they are called to change. You resemble what you worship. Everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust, another teaching associated, but again separate, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! A hallmark of hypocrisy is judgmentalism. The biggest 
symptom of judgmentalism is the fact that someone who's being judgmental, the worldliness, you are so insecure about your own failings that you're trying to coach somebody else out of theirs, point the finger and say exactly how wrong the other person is without considering the fact in this instance, Jesus is telling them, you're trying to help someone who's got a speck of dust in their eye when you've got a log jetting out of yours. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and, it, and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Verse 43, no good tree bears another teaching. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. And in this way, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up where? In his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Or to quote the old memory verse in the same passage from another version, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is why many teachers harp about your conduct, your conversation, and your character. My dad, that great theologian of the faith, please don't tell him I said that. He'll get the joke. Actually, he's, he's always been something of a theologian and a philosopher to me. He has that kind of easy wisdom. Not that it isn't profound, but the way that he says things you can easily get. And I remember a phrase that he used to use, of course, him being a coach of good grief. I know that he was a basketball coach, a baseball coach, because he was my baseball coach and a football coach later on. He used to refer to people who acted one way, kids that he knew of acting one way on Sunday morning, and yet in another way at school he referred to as locker room Christians. They knew how to dress, they knew how to talk the talk when it came certain hours of the day once a week, but when they went outside, or when they came to school, or when they were with their buddies, everything that they were supposed to be, supposedly with the change the transformed spirit, was not to be found. There is a vague misconception among some Baptists that believe in the concept of once saved, always saved, which incidentally I do, that once saved, always saved also means that there are those Christians who are by their very nature carnal. A person, hear me, I do believe that once someone is under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and they accept Christ in the free pardon of sin, then they are indeed saved. But I want to ask you something to consider really quickly. Is not repentance part of that faith. A saving faith should be a transforming faith. A saving faith that drives someone to the altar, that falls upon their knees and cries out, God, forgive me, a sinner. 
is also a faith that should instill within that person the desire to be changed. The desire to hold to with all the love in their heart the teachings of Christ, who he himself is going to comment on in this very sermon. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall what? Enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, those who love me keep my commandments. The hallmark of a faith, according to James, is that faith generates good works. Not that we work to become saved, but because we work because we what? We have been saved. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit, which ignites the faith within the heart of the believer in the first place that draws them to the altar in repentance, should draw them to the altar in repentance. And if someone comes to the altar, claims that they want to be a member of a church, and yet they do not exhibit any of the signs of having made that conversion, of having left everything over to Christ. You cannot have Christ as Savior and not have Him also as Lord. That is not a saving faith. That is perfunctory. That is becoming a church member and not a Christian. And when Christ says the scariest, I think, pericope in all of Scripture, that there are those that will come to Him on the final day, when the books are open and all the deeds of all the world are laid bare, there are those that will come to Christ and not only say, Lord, but they will say, Lord, Lord. The same way that David in the Old Testament over the death of his son said, Absalom, Absalom. When you hear somebody in Scripture's name called out Christ, it means that they are affirming that this person is close enough to be a family member. So people who claim that Christ is theirs in an intimate way, will go up to him and say, have we not cast out demons? Have we not ourselves performed miracles? Have we not told others about you? Have we not done all these wonderful things? And he will look at them plainly. People who are under the delusion that a church membership will save them. People under the delusion that being wealthy and giving money, all the while touting their riches, will save them. People who claim that they have done all these wonderful things, and he will look straight through their heart, and he will say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Not that I knew you once and then you were lost again. I don't believe that that can happen because that would make God a breaker of promises. Not that you were in my hand once and somehow managed to jump out of it because I don't believe that that's possible. The Bible doesn't describe salvation that way. I never knew you. More literally, you worker of lawlessness. And what we don't often hear preached about that is when Jesus is basically telling them is that A, you're lying right now to my face. And B, I know the sin that you have committed in my name.
They thought that they had done all the right things, all the right check, mark, uh, check marks, the legalism of the faith. Did I move my membership? Did I always tithe? And yes, those things are important. But more important than any and all of these things is that personal relationship with Christ. A faith that does not inspire repentance is not a saving faith. Now that's not to say that you can have multiple kinds of faith. There is only one true faith. Amen? And it is a gift of God. For by grace are you saved through, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's only one kind of faith. So if you profess a faith that you were never given, a faith that was never yours in the first place, and you come to accept church membership based on a faulty faith, are you saved? Never really having called upon Christ as Savior and Lord? It's a scary chapter of the book, yet it's in Matthew. It's echoed here. Someone who has a transformed heart, you can tell because of the fruit that they bear. We're going to get into that in a little bit more depth here lately, but I want, to keep, I want you to keep this in mind. Those who love me keep my commandments. Those who love me learn from me, Jesus tells us. Those who love me by their conduct, their conversation, and their character reflect the things that Christ teaches. If you are a teacher, excuse me, if you are a student, the student inevitably becomes a reflection of the teacher. You become like the object of your worship. If you worship Christ, all that you are should be in submission to Him so that you might reflect who He is. The free gift of grace requires that you don't pay anything to God. But there is one thing that you do owe Him in return. Your love. And those who love Him serve Him. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now remember that repetition. Why do you call Him Christ, Christ? When you come out to call out to Him, Abba, Father, O Lord, my Lord, how majestic is Your name. Anytime you hear that double name, Abraham, Abraham, it means that you have an, an intimate attachment to that person. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Underline that in your copy of God's Word. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, incidentally, the Greek word there hears in verse 47 is not just that you have the sense of hearing, but that you are listening. 
All those who listen to my voice, in other words. There's a difference between just hearing something and listening. Those who listen to my words and put them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. House on the sand. The moment the torrent struck that house, excuse me, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit because when I used to sing this as a little kid, I never understood how you could build a house on a rock and it not still wipe away. I didn't get the image because my image was building like a set of Lincoln logs on top of a house that someone could just push aside. I didn't hear the digging down deep part. Matter of translation. What Jesus is effectively saying is back in Israel, even to this day, there are a bunch of what look like dry riverbeds called wadis, W-A-D, I think it's D-D-I-E, or W-A-D-D-Y. I can't remember what the American equivalent is, but I believe it's gulch. Basically, it's a creek bed that doesn't really get any water until the rain season comes. Now, in Israel, there's only two rain seasons. In West Virginia, there's a 365-day rain season. But in Israel, two times of year, the rains come. And they don't just come either. They come in torrents. And all this water starts spilling down from the sky all at once. And it has to have somewhere to go. And it comes down so forcibly that it enters into the cisterns that were already dug out so that they could collect water for the rest of the year. But they also form these riverbeds that scatters throughout Israel. And they stay completely dry the rest of the year until the rains come. And when the rains come again, it comes down with such force. And you've seen this happen in floods. I believe that we saw it in Clendenin. Not, not but a handful of years ago in what they called the thousand-year flood, when a tiny creek bed called the Hurricane Creek that only raises up about three inches suddenly destroyed a city. The waters come down, and they fill these creek beds to overflowing, and torrents of waves of fast water come down Israel's side, and people who built their houses Along these wadis, if they don't dig deep enough to the point that they go past the topsoil, they go past the sand, they go past the undercoat, and they hit the bedrock, if they're not that deep, if their roots don't extend down to the rock, the house is swept up and blown away. The trick is people do that. People don't want to waste money on the effort to dig. People don't want to waste money, quote-unquote waste money, on the timbers necessary to attach the up-and-coming house onto, a, onto the bedrock. Instead, they want to build something that is a facade. They want something that looks good on the outside. They invest all their money in the size of the living space. 
without preparation for what's underneath. They want to make things look pretty on the outside, spacious on the inside. But it doesn't matter how well built it is above the ground if what is underneath the ground isn't rooted in place because the second that those torrents hit, what's going to happen to it? Utterly destroyed everything they invested in, the beauty, the grandeur, no matter how palatial their house is, if it isn't founded on the rock, if it isn't dug deep so that it will hold on to what is true, when the waters hit it, it will fall apart. That's what Jesus is ultimately saying. You who claim to be Christian and are not, who try to live in the grandiose trappings of a life without roots, without depth, a life that is not built on the rock who is Christ himself, a life who only skips the top of the surface and builds everything from the sand up, it will look gorgeous because that's where all your money is invested in. That's what you have invested yourself in, the appearance the facade, the exterior. Oh, what a good person am I. A person who builds their life on pride instead of on Christ, which is the exact opposite, is doomed to failure. Because the second the tide of either the circumstances of living in a fallen world or the tide of Christ's correction hits, it will not stand. But a house where the individual has invested themselves in attaching their life to the bedrock that has done, dug deep and strengthened themselves on the foundation of Christ, no matter what kind of a shack their life might look like on the outside, it will stand. That is the truth that Christ is telling us. Why do you bother calling him Lord if you ignore what he commands us? Someone who does not live the life that Christ patterned for us, those who instead decide that they are going to maintain only the facade, the facade doesn't last long. When their conduct, their conversation, and the character becomes revealed for what it is. Paul even writes here in the commentary on what Christ just spoke in Galatians 5. The world, the flesh, and the devil, if you are not rooted on the rock, then you're on the earth. And that's a prophetic image. You're either on the Christ or you're on the enemy. There is no other option. You are either wittingly a child of the king or you are unwittingly a servant and a slave to the forces that stand against him. Paul writes as following, you cannot hide carnality. The acts of the flesh are obvious, he writes to us. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, excuse me, factions, 
and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will what? Not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about people outside the church only. He's talking about people inside the church who still don't know Christ. How many times has a deacon become a deacon because they just happen to be the popular person in the church? Or in a rush to accept whosoever will and pad the numbers that the people of the church stop to, to ask and to, to think and to wonder if we have a safe church membership. If we give ownership of the church, in other words, to anyone who asks, who declares that they have to be a Christian first, and yet they're not, what are we doing with our ministry? That's what Christ is saying. He's saying before you can wear the badge of a Christian, you have to be a Christian. Because those, as Baptists especially, we believe in the polity of, the, of the, not only the priesthood of all believers, but in a saved church membership, meaning that you have to be saved before you can be a member. But if you are a member, you have a responsibility, you have a vote, you have a say. You are a minister of the church. And if you're not saved... If you're not being influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit, then there is a cancer within the body of Christ. Paul's warning against that here. There are those among you, in other words, as he's saying, who still exhibit the, the old clothes, the old habits, the things that should have been long put away with the second they accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. And instead there is this laundry list of things Bad fruit coming from bad trees. But this is the way a Christian is supposed to look. This is the way a Christian is supposed to look. Incidentally, if you haven't marked it down yet, go ahead and put down Galatians 5, starting with verse 19 for your, for your own study. And I highly recommend that you do. The fruit of the Spirit are just as obvious. The people who are Christ-like stand in sharp contrast to the rest of this world. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who underline this in your own copy of God's Word or mark it down as a, as a new memory verse, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with all of its passions and desires. All the things that Paul laundry listed for us just a couple of verses ago are the things that the Christian should have no part in. The radical transformation of the faith that they express should be such that, including with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit regenerating us into the new creation that we're supposed to be, those things are gone. Now, I'm not saying that the saints of God will live completely perfect lives. What I am saying is that the rule for their life, the overwhelming average of their works, will include the love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, forbearance, in other words, forgiveness, 
patience, temperance, self-control. That's the rule, not the exception. And for those who claim to be a Christian and are not, the rest remains in abundance. And there's also this curious other thing here. I'll leave you with another indicator of disobedience for you to consider. The sin of inaction. In the old Sunday school material, we used to say that there is a sin of commission and a sin of omission. The brother of Christ puts it this way, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Part of the things that, remember the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's active. It's not like the rest. It's not like the Buddhist teaching where it simply tells you to withhold wrath. But you do good for that person. When someone who claims to be your enemy is in a hard way, you don't kick them while you're down. The Christian would go and help that person and try through a Christ-like agape, self-sacrificial love, remind them of who Christ is. Changing the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. The ministry of the Christian is love. Your weapon against all the hatred, bitterness, evil of this world. The only weapon that you really truly have is love, and it is a powerful weapon. It is a powerful weapon indeed. How many of you have seen lives changed and people brought to Christ because they got a taste of His love through the goodness of somebody else? Minister always, and where necessary, use words. I, I'm okay with that quote. I'll get on with it in just a second. But make your actions live up to the words you profess as well. And here's the thing about the Christian life. This is the thing that many of those who are not Christian don't really get. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Aren't you glad of that fact? Part of the fruit of the Spirit is a joy that sustains you through all of life's circumstances. Happiness is circumstantial. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness requires something outside of you to make that reaction within you. Joy is something that is there just because the Holy Spirit resides within you. And as long as the Holy Spirit is there, which He always will be, sealed until the day of redemption, you will have that joy available to you no matter what. also comes with a peace that passes all understanding. No circumstance can prevail against you if you're in Christ. Let me say that again because I think that deserves an amen. It's enough to make a Baptist shout. The peace of mind that God grants each and every one of you will prevail no matter the circumstance that this life hands you. You don't need to be happy. You have joy. You don't need 
anything external because he who is within you is far and away greater than he who is within the world. And the Holy Spirit is a powerful ally indeed, overcoming all that, puts, that is put in his way. Nothing that this world can put against you, no weapon forged against you can prevail because he who is greater is in you. I've already preached a little on this, but I want it to be in your memory. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform all these miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you liars. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Depart from me, you evil doers. These are people, wolves in sheep's clothing. People who are without the relationship that characterizes Christ, the Christian. He cannot be Savior without being Lord. He has to be both. Now, this is part of a series that I've been preaching. This is the next section. But I hope that what you have been getting out of these last few messages is this truth. We have a wonderful opportunity right now to do some real deep discipleship, to have the Christians of the faith within the local body of believers, especially Highland Baptist Church, to grow by leaps and bounds and mature in the faith, to move from the milk to the meat, to no longer be subsisting off of baby food, but instead to be able to draw enough strength so that when your faith is tested, you know it can be trusted. And when one day you are called upon to act as the bigger brother or sister, that you are equipped with not only the scriptural knowledge, but the, the out-of-mouth vocabulary necessary to help a new person in the faith mature as well. To be for Timothy what Paul was, to be for Paul what Jesus was. To be the older brother, the older sister. And sometimes that comes with a hard, lot of, of hard love. Not that we love them any less and not that we consider them always in judgmentality, but there's something in your life that needs to be adjusted because your commitment to Christ is starting to waver, meaning your relationship with Him is starting to suffer. And Christ desires a close, personal, intimate relationship with all of those that are the children of God. He does not seek judgment. He seeks love through obedience. He seeks to equip you to sustain yourself through this life without having to rely on anything else. To be a part of a body of believers that he will one day call his bride. So I will leave you with this message. It was a poem written 
and carved into the doors of a cathedral in Lubbock, Germany. And I want you to consider it. We are called to be a different kind of organization. We are called to be a different kind of people. We are called not to be a club, not to be a family reunion, Ethan. We are called to be the church. Deeper ties of affection than any family. Stronger senses of love, commitment, and hope than any club or organization. Fraternal in nature in that we love all those that come into our doors. But with a deeper sense of an abiding them over me, agape love. Consider these words when we examine ourselves, both as the congregation and as the, the individual member. You call me master, yet obey me not. You call me light, and see me not. You call me the way, but walk me not. You call me life, but desire me not. You call me wise, and follow me not. You call me fair, but love me not. You call me rich, and ask me not. You call me eternal, and seek me not. You call me gracious, and yet you trust me not. You call me noble, and you serve me not. You call me mighty, and honor me not. You call me just, and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Who are we before God? The challenge is simply this, and it's very simple. The voice of Christ calls out to each and every one that would be his disciple. Those who love me, those who love me, obey my commandments. And in that obedience, they do not find slavery. In that obedience, they do not find toil. In that obedience, they do not find frustration. In that obedience, they find the love of their Father. They find the hope of a tomorrow that's brighter than the sun. They find a peace that passes all understanding. And they find a joy that sustains them through all of life's circumstances. This is your inheritance as a child of God. Call him both your Savior and your Lord. Call him both your Master and Christ. Call him the one you love because he first loved you. All God's people said. So, Heavenly Father, as we transition now from the service of the Word, Lord, as we seek your grace, we also ask you to forgive us. 
Lord, for those times that we were not your willing disciple, when we placed ourselves before our neighbors, where we placed our comfort, where we placed what we were before the person that you are, where we loved ourselves more than we loved you who we are called to love above all else. Free us, Lord, from the sin that would bind us. Free us not to be judgers of others, but to be more discerning of ourselves. Free us for joyful obedience of you so that those who see us so that our neighbors outside these walls, so that the children that play outside the doorstep of this very church, so that those who have yet to come to know you in a free pardon of sin, for those in broken homes, for those in drug-trenched families, for those who are, whose lives have been shattered by this world, form us into people that would adequately reflect your love so that they may find it before it is everlastingly too late. And the love, joy, peace that you grant for so many would be theirs as well. Help us, Lord. Help us to be better servants, to be a better family, to be the people you have created and redeemed us to be. If there are any within this service now who have a decision on their hearts or who simply need a special touch of your hand, Draw them to your table now. May they find that heart of warmth that you provide. May they, they, may they find your embrace and their place in your kingdom. And be reassured that you have never, will never leave the side of your child. In the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.